0: Regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I'm so glad you joined me today. It's my birthday, so I'm giving myself a present. Uh, I am going to uh, talk about one of the dumbest ideas that I have run across. Since the Supreme Court handed down a decision in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, uh, what that, is it? Hard to believe it's been almost almost two months now, but six or six weeks or so, right? So, <laughs> this comes from uh, Washington Monthly, uh, a uh, uh, an op-ed by a guy named uh, Gregory Coger, who is a professor of political science at the University of Miami. And uh, the gift that uh, Gregory Coger has given me—the the 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 gift of outright silliness—in uh, response to the exercise of a constitutional right—headlined: uh, it "It's time for a national gun buyback." Yeah. Now you're probably already aware of the fact that there's not been a study out there showing that these gun buybacks—I call them compensated confiscation events. Do anything to reduce violent crime, do anything to reduce accidental shootings, do anything to reduce suicides involving firearms. They just the only benefit they serve is for politicians who get to say, look, we did something. That's it. That is it. But according to Gregory Coger, it could be time for a new approach to America's quote gun problem, which is an indication that Gregory Coger is going to offer up something that, uh, is either unconstitutional or completely ineffective, right? When you view the exercise of a constitutional right in and of itself as a problem, I think your solutions are going to be way off base, but, uh, Coger says, um, a national gun buyback program. Yeah. Paid for by higher excise taxes on gun purchases. For decades, he says, federal and state gun policy has focused on regulation. Banning private sales of some weapons, restricting who can buy specific weapons, controlling where guns can be carried or fired, and so on. Most of the proposals advocated by reform groups, don't call them gun control groups like the Brady Center to Prevent Gun Violence and Every Town for Gun Safety, reflect this regulatory approach, which has yielded a significant body of laws, such as prohibiting the sale of automatic weapons. But in the modern context, it has three distinct limitations. By the way, Brady, Every Town, there really was no modern gun control movement back in 1934 at the time that automatic firearms were placed under the auspices of the National Firearms Act there was really no organized gun control anyway one would think a professor of political science might be aware of that but uh, whatever okay so he says anyway that, that 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 previous approach the regulatory approach the the old school way of doing gun control eh it just doesn't work anymore for three reasons and here they are first he says it's nearly impossible for Congress to enact major gun control legislation. Any gun control law must pass the 60-vote filibuster threshold in the Senate. Since 1981, there's been only 133 days when the majority party had 60 or more votes, so as a practical matter, a reform bill needs at least some Republican support. Still, over the past decade, there have been very few Republican votes for any gun control measure. All right. So first reason uh, Congress uh, can't pass a gun control law. Second, he says the Republican majority in the Supreme Court is skeptical of gun control laws. In June, for example, they struck down a New York law requiring state approval for citizens to carry a concealed weapon. No, that's not what that did. Uh, It did not establish constitutional carry in the state of New York. It struck down the state's good cause requirement where you had to Prove to the state that you had some sort of reason that elevated you above that of an average citizen in order for you to exercise your right to bear arms. But, uh, boy, I'm starting to think that this political science professor needs to do some more reading here over his summer break. Anyway, the third reason, he says, uh, quote, no politically feasible restrictive gun law would address the enormous number of farms already in circulation. A 2018 study found that Americans possess about 45 percent of all of the privately owned farms in the world. If Congress banned all gun sales today, the country would still have more guns than people. I actually wrote about this uh, for bearing Arms yesterday because Sean Cass, an Illinois Democrat, said it's time to – we need to have this hard conversation about what to do with all of the guns that are out there, right? The the guns that aren't touched by the uh, so-called assaultments ban that just passed out of the House. There were four and a million privately owned farms in this country until we do something to bring those numbers down. Didn't say what it was that he wanted to do, but uh, yeah, I mean, listen. Clearly, gun control advocates are not satisfied with blocking guns from being made. <laughs> they want to do something about the guns that are already owned, and they want to do something about your right to keep and bear them. So, those are the three reasons why Gregory Coger says, "Ah, you know, this regulatory approach just just doesn't work anymore." But he's got his. New idea, right? As an alternative to regulatory gun control measures, he says, I'm proposing a gun buyback program in which the purchase price is tied to each weapon's market value and the likelihood of its being used in criminal activity. To finance the program, Congress should increase excise taxes on firearms, ammunition, and selected tactical gear, such as body armor. The federal government already levies about a 10% tax on firearms and ammunition. Under my proposal, these taxes would be increased significantly though not so high as to be prohibitive and trigger court challenges. To go further, Congress could potentially apply a progressive tax based on how dangerous a weapon is, like placing a higher tax on an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle than an historic flintlock rifle. All right, so um, what was the first reason why Gregory Coger said... We needed to get away from this regulatory approach to gun control. Let's go back and see. It's nearly impossible for Congress to enact major gun control legislation. So, Greg, (laughs) why would your idea for a national gun buyback, quote unquote, uh, be any easier a lift for Congress than, say, I don't know, a ban on the most commonly sold rifles in the country today? Hmm. Ah. Of course Greg's not here to answer that question. It's more of a rhetorical question. Uh anyway, he uh, goes on to say uh, do buybacks work? Critics point to cities that have purchased weapons and then destroyed them typically on a short-term basis with mixed results. No, there's there's no mixed result. <laughs> Gun buybacks don't work to reduce violent crime. You know, I I I wrote a piece, I remember last year. I wrote a piece in Rochester. Or about Rochester, New York. Uh, city was holding gun buybacks. This is before Mayor Lovely Warren had to resign after she was accused of violating New York's gun laws. Uh, and I said, we'll go back and we'll check and see what happens to shootings and homicides after the buyback in Rochester. Homicides in Rochester are on pace for a record high this year, a year after the buyback was held. And again, I'm not aware of any even mixed results for gun buybacks. They uniformly appear to do nothing of any substance. But he says he's got an answer for that. Gregory Coger does. He says, uh, countries have had national buyback programs that have a greater success. Several studies have confirmed that Australia's buyback of quote-unquote assault weapons in the 1990s, albeit compulsory, albeit, uh, never mind that that minor thing that it was compulsory. I'm proposing to volunteer. Anyway, he says, uh, uh, albeit compulsory, uh, reduced homicides and suicides. Additionally, the pricing structure will help provide the greatest benefit for public health by targeting the most violent weapons. The most violent weapons. See, this is what happens when people who don't know a whole lot about the issue. And I know the Democrats said last week, oh, yeah, yeah, you guys are really good with the technical stuff. No, 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 no. It's not even about the, the technical terms as opposed to the you know shoulder thingy that goes up. I'm not even talking about that. Clearly, Gregory Koger, in, in his world, right, the most money that you'd receive at one of these buybacks would be for turning in an AR-15, right? I mean, that's the most violent weapon. But it's not used in the most crimes. Uh, According to FBI crime statistics, in fact, there were fewer rifles used as murder weapons, rifles of any kind, including those old flintlock muskets, used uh, in in any homicide. Compared to fists and feet, or hammers and other blunt objects, handguns are by far the most commonly used firearm in the commission of violent crimes. Also, the most commonly used firearm in the commission of self-defense. But, Ooh, does that mean that handguns are the most violent weapon? Does that mean that the uh, money that you would get for a quote unquote buyback would would pay the most for handguns since they are used uh, mostly in crime? But that's not how most of the buyback structures work right now, where you tend to get anywhere from let's say fifty to a hundred dollars for a handgun, and then prices are slightly higher, let's say one hundred and fifty to two hundred fifty dollars for a so-called assault weapon, because again, it's about the big black scary gun. As opposed to uh, the most commonly used firearm in terms of violent crime, and again in self-defense, which is why the whole buyback idea doesn't make any sense to begin with. As Koger noted, we live in a country in which we have about a hundred million gun owners. We have about four hundred million privately owned firearms. Now, I let, let's just let's just assume for the sake of argument that Congress passes this bill that he's proposing. They raise the excise taxes on purchase of firearms and ammunition as well as body armor uh, and other, you know, tactical gear. Uh, And then they use that money to fund this buyback program. How many guns is he thinking he's going to, the federal government is going to collect voluntarily? And where does he think that those guns are going to be coming from? Are they going to be coming from violent criminals? Or are they going to be coming from people who, you know, have a, gun tucked away that their dad left to him that they haven't used or fired in 20 years. Because those things matter. Or are they going to do what we saw in Houston recently, where an individual printed uh, several firearms, you know, ghost guns, and sold them, well, turned them in at a buyback. I think he spent about $5 to make each gun, and he got, I think, $50 for each handgun. Would probably see a lot more of that too, wouldn't we? One would think. Again, I, I don't. I don't really believe that Coger has uh, thought this through, because there are also constitutional concerns. You know, he said raising the excise tax would result in fewer guns being sold overall, which I think then runs a foul of the Constitution, when you are, uh, I, I think there's an open question about taxing the exercise of a constitutional right anyway, but when you are specifically doing so with one of the intended purposes uh, being to reduce the number of legal gun owners, reduce the number of Americans who are exercising their constitutional right to keep and bear arms because they cannot afford to do so. Hell yeah, you're going to get challenged in court. Here's what Coger says quote, uh, Increased taxes on firearms, ammunition, and gear could help reduce purchases of new guns. A 2002 study by Douglas C. Bice and David D. Himley found that consumer demand in the handgun market is highly elastic. As prices increased by 1%, demand decreased by 2 to 3%. Congress can choose a tax rate that balances the need for revenue against discouraging private weapon sales. But the whole point is to discourage private weapons sales, according to Koger. It's just he wants Congress to do it in a way that isn't so blatantly obvious that the courts will say, hey, that's what this is designed to do. I got news for you, Greg. When you're saying in your pitch to Congress that it's going to lead to fewer gun sales, <clears throat> the courts are likely to pick up on that. Koger goes on to say that uh, ideally Republicans would embrace this proposal <laughs> as a measure to increase public safety without infringing on the 2nd Amendment. sure. Yeah, they'll embrace it because, you know, we're going to try to price people out of their right to keep and bear arms. He says, but even given Republican opposition to tax hikes in general, let alone on guns, a Democratic votes only maneuver through the budget reconciliation process would be necessary. An excise tax on weaponry and a firearm buyback program are budgetary measures that fall well within the confines of reconciliation and thus can be enacted by a simple majority of the Senate. Yeah, good luck with that, Greg. Good luck with that. Um, You know, the other portion of uh, Joe Biden's gun ban plan, you know, he wanted to ban so-called assault weapons, right? House passed that bill, uh, with the grandfather clause, right? Joe Biden, remember when he was running for president, he said, well, yeah, we got to ban these guns, but but, 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 um, if you want to keep them, you've got to register them under the NFA, right? Uh, like you do machine guns. And if you don't, well, you got to hand them over. Well, we'll pay you for them. We'll have this national, quote unquote, gun buyback. I think Gregory Coger should ask himself why Democrats didn't include that in their gun ban bill that that passed by two votes uh, in the House, a bill that is not likely to be brought up in the Senate (laughs) before Election Day. Um, Why didn't Democrats adopt Joe Biden's gun control plan, which, again, sounds a lot like Gregory Coger's buyback plan with a gun ban attached to it. I think the answer is that they couldn't have gotten 217 votes if they did. That you would have had more Democratic defections. Maybe, maybe you would have seen one of those two uh, Republicans who voted in favor of the ban uh, switch their vote. Uh, We did actually see a couple of Republicans who had been in favor of a ban on so-called weapons vote against the uh, House measure last week. Now, I think there's a simple reason why Democrats didn't include Joe or didn't run with uh, Biden's gun ban plan. It's because they know that the votes aren't there. So, no, I don't think that the votes are there for this measure in the Senate. If the votes were there in the Senate, I don't think that Cogar's idea would stand up to constitutional scrutiny. And finally, I just have to say to the political science professor, I really think you're standing on the wrong side of history here. When you're advocating for ways that the federal government can infringe on the rights of those Americans at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, quite frankly, right, those for whom even a 5% increase in the cost of a firearm might prevent them from being able to afford one especially when you add in all of the additional fees and red tape and all of the local hoops and hurdles that they might have to go through to exercise their constitutional right. Gregory Coger, you may think that you're on the side of the angels. But no, you're not. You're you're, you're advocating for getting in the way of an individual and their civil rights, their, their, their fundamental right to keep and bear arms in self-defense. Uh, Not only would that not reduce violent crime, it would put good people at risk, and this is an idea that uh, should be consigned to the dustbin of history, or at least not go anywhere beyond the pages of Washington Monthly, and I suspect that's going to be the case. All right, let's turn our attention now to today's Armed citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. We'll start there. A story from uh, Indiana: the uh, suspect in the shooting of a 24-year-old police officer in uh, Elmwood, Indiana, a violent offender with many prior convictions, including prior convictions for shooting at police officers. Yeah, uh, WIBC reports that the uh, suspect Carl Boards II uh, charged on Monday. With murder, resisting law enforcement, resisting law enforcement with a vehicle in possession of a fire by a serious violent felon. charging documents say that uh, boards shot and killed Officer Noah Shaavaz around two o'clock Sunday morning in uh, Madison County, Indiana. Back in 2008, boards was excuse me 2006. Uh, boards was sentenced to 25 years in prison. For attempted murder after firing shots at police officers in Indianapolis. He appealed uh, and actually won that appeal. He was sentenced on a criminal recklessness charge and he was released early. He also had a weapons possession conviction from 1999. He had a drug possession conviction from 2001. Uh, The local president of the uh, FOP, Rick Snyder, said the judge combined all of the offender's charges in his 2006 conviction, which should have totaled 39 years executed in prison. Instead, the offender got only 25 years and only served 13. Yeah, only served 13 years old, or 13 years of his uh, 25 years, should have been 39 years sentence. Uh, and instead of being behind bars, the suspect was out on the street after having previously said if he was ever pulled over, he would shoot the officer, uh, allegedly said this that he would shoot whoever pulled him over. Snyder told uh, WIBC in uh, Indianapolis, Indiana, that uh, you know he keeps hearing people ask, when will the violence end? And he said it will stop when the criminal justice system starts holding repeat violent offenders accountable. Yeah, and um, I think we've got a way to go, if that is in fact the case. Now, today's Armed citizen story from California, where uh, all of the gun control laws in place did not prevent an armed robbery suspect from uh, running into a liquor store armed with a semi-automatic rifle. Thankfully, California's gun control laws did also not prevent the store owner from having a shotgun for self-defense. And there's the headline that ensued, armed robber fleece in panic when Norco liquor store owner blasts shotgun. He shot my arm off. Yeah. According to police, there are actually four uh, armed individuals. Only one of them made it inside the store before the 80-year-old store owner fired to pull the trigger one time uh, with that shotgun. And again, hit the suspect in the arm. Uh, He then turned and ran as the second suspect or a second suspect was trying to get in to the store. Saw what was going on. They both took off, almost left one of their compatriots behind. The uh, four uh, have been arrested, three of them taken into custody. The fourth, the guy who was shot uh, at last report, listed uh, in critical but stable condition at a local hospital. The 80-year-old store owner, by the way, had a heart attack afterwards. It sounds like he's going to recover, but uh, according to Eyewitness News 7 in in, uh, Los Angeles, um, yeah, after... You know, the adrenaline rush ended. Uh, He ended up suffering a heart attack. Uh, Employees, coworkers praising this 80-year-old. One of them said she's got a new nickname for him, a quick draw McGraw, and uh, hopefully he gets to hear that in person before long. But uh, who knows? Well, I I say who knows what would have happened. I think we know what's likely to have happened had this 80-year-old not been able to protect and defend himself. Uh, Now, this was a shotgun. This doesn't directly relate to concealed carry, but... We do know that uh, concealed carry applications have been surging in Los Angeles County in the wake of the Bruin decision, and I'm guessing that this story, which is getting a fair amount of local coverage, this is out of Riverside, California, by the way, which has had pretty good permitting even before the uh, Bruin decision came down and got rid of the uh, good cause requirement. I, I My guess is that the amount of local attention that this is getting is probably going to lead to uh, more folks thinking about their own safety and security and Maybe buying a shotgun for their uh, home defense, but uh, also, I think, you know, taking the time and availing themselves of the opportunity to apply for a concealed carry permit there in uh, California. Finally, today's good deed of the day from Minnesota, Underwood, Minnesota, where a a good Samaritan in the right place at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing to help out their uh, friendly neighborhood uh, mail delivery person. Is that the proper? Politically correct term, postal worker, right? So this was uh yesterday, Monday. Uh Brenda Christofferson uh getting all of her mail sorted out and ready to go. She uh drives her Buick uh uh throughout Otter Tail County, hundred and two mile route of gravel roads. Yeah. And again, as a rural carrier, she's not in one of the uh uh the postal service trucks, she's in her own car. Well, her car had some trouble, Uh, decided not to cooperate. She said it was overheating. She popped the hood, saw that she had a blown water hose. Uh, And that is when a uh, fella named Ozzy Tollefson, who uh, lives on Christopherson's route, decided to help. He's a retired school teacher. Uh, At first, he said, well, you can borrow my car. And she said, where's the stick shift? And I said, it's in the middle. And she said, well, that's not going to work because I need to be able to slide across the, st- the, the seat, you know, to get – because if you're driving in your own personal car, it can be a pain in the butt. We have rural uh, mail carriers here. So, Ozzy Tollison said, all right, well, that will work for you. Uh, we got to deliver the mail. So, I'm going to drive you. <laughs> And that's what he did. He says, I was actually in my pajama pants and T-shirt. He said, I hadn't had my vitamins and my bran flakes and my prune juice. I said, let's go. And she had 455 mailboxes on her route. So it turned out to be a good day, said Christopherson. Um, Tollefson said, I, I found out it was six hours on the road. He said, I'm glad I didn't take my prune juice, if you know what I mean. I, I, yes, I do indeed. Uh, Christopherson, by the way, says uh, she was not surprised at Tollison's offer. She says, it's just what happens around the area. She says, I learned a lot about him. I'm sure he learned a lot about me. She said, it was fun. It was a fun day. We laughed most of the day. Christopherson able to get her uh, car fixed. Tollefson, uh says he doesn't plan on doing this again unless, you know, she needs some help, but uh, he said he would not trade the day for anything. He said, it says a lot about the people around here in this part of the country. Christopherson said, uh, I think it's awesome. I mean, people help people out here. That's what they do. And you know, I think in most parts of the country, that is, in fact, what people do, but uh, in the right place at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing to help make sure that the mail made it through. Ozzie Tollison, we thank you for your very good deed. Now, that is all the time we've got for you on this edition of Barry and Arms Cam and Company. I want to thank you for being a part of the program as well. We'll be back tomorrow with even more of the latest Second Amendment news and information. But don't forget, you can check out the website, bearingarms.com. In the meantime, we'll get you updated throughout the day. If you like what you see, you can also become a VIP subscriber. Just go to BarionArms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNRIGHTS, and you can get a significant savings on your VIP membership. As always, was saying, thanks for showing your support for the independent pro second reporting we do at Bearing Arms. We're going to give you exclusive content, new stories and analysis you won't find anywhere else because your support does matter, and it really does make a difference. So, thank you again. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Until then, be well, be safe. Knocked over my water there. Uh, that would be very unsafe near an audio board. <clears throat> and be free.